dear listener, are cordially invited to my B-Day party. No, it's not my birthday. Today, we're celebrating the magnificent honeybee. There's food, drinks, flowers, and, of course, honey galore. Now, let's say I raise my glass of grape juice and make a toast. <clears throat> Here's to saving the honeybee, the heroes of the animal kingdom. And everyone says, Cheers! I'll drink to that. I won't drink to that. Wait, what? I won't drink to that. <gasps> you're crashing my B-Day party. You should at least introduce yourself if you're going to do that. My name is Nick Doran. I'm a PhD student at Tufts University, where I study the ecology and conservation of wild bees. Well, can you explain your hot take? I mean, why won't you cheer to saving the honeybees? Yeah, so that's right. Honeybees don't need saving. Honeybees are not ever at risk of going extinct. I like to think of honeybees most as an agricultural commodity. We raise them like livestock. We keep them in boxes. We manage them industrially. And if we think of honeybees as livestock, then their conservation becomes akin to raising chickens to save songbirds. It's, it doesn't make sense because honeybees are not woven into the fabric of our ecosystems. Sure, they pollinate crops, but honeybees are not the environmental panacea that we all hope they are, uh, or that they're made out to be in the media. In contrast, our native bees fill that role quite nicely. Our native bees do live in our native ecosystems. They do pollinate our wildflowers. They are intricately connected to plants and also predators, um, and as a result, form linkages um, in our ecosystems. Our native bees are important pollinators of spring-blooming shrubs black cherry, beech plum, um, chokeberry. And as a result, this pollination supports the migratory songbirds that depend on energy-rich fruits to complete their journeys. And so bees in spring can link together continents through the migration of songbirds in the fall. And so without as many bees, perhaps those fruits would not be in as abundance and perhaps migration would be uh, more stressful for our songbirds or or result in it will be weaker, right? So as we change the environment in ways that erode bee populations, eroding honeybee populations, not so great for our food system because we depend on them for our monocultures, eroding populations of native bees, my goodness, it has these sort of cascading impacts on, on other parts of the environment, many of which we don't fully understand the complexity of. And so uh, the question is not, should we eliminate honeybees from our food system, but it's how do we best diversify our food system uh, in order to, to consider the need for honeybees, which can pollinate large swaths of land with native bees, which are really effective pollinators. And I think it's interesting how honeybees are celebrated here in the United States, but they were actually brought over from Europe. And this idea of European honeybees becoming the saviors and the bees that are indigenous to North America. It kind of parallels the story of Christopher Columbus that is constantly told in schools and history textbooks where the uh, native people are forgotten and Christopher Columbus is painted as sort of a hero. You said that European honeybees are not really equipped to pollinate a lot of the native 
crops here. So would replacing native crops with non-native ones help create a more climate resilient agriculture system? I don't necessarily think, think so. Uh, so, you know, our crops come from all over the world. Some of our crops are native to North America, like blueberries and cranberries. Others are native to the Southern Hemisphere, like uh, tomatoes. Um, and still others, like peaches, are from the, the Middle East um, and Asia. And so uh, we already grow a variety of crops from all over the world, some of which honeybees are equipped to pollinate and others which aren't. So I think the solution for the most sustainable food system is one where we recognize that we need a diversity of pollinators to pollinate our diversity of crops. Now, you know, there are going to be fluctuations in populations of all these different insects. Um, sometimes there will be species that increase, other times they'll decrease. And, and right now we're experiencing large declines in many of our pollinators. And so I like the analogy of like a stock portfolio, right? Any savvy financial planner will recommend that you diversify your portfolio to cope with fluctuations in the market. And I think it, the analogy extends pretty nicely to food systems where in order to ensure a resilient food system, we need to diversify our pollinator portfolio. Having just honeybees means that when honeybees do well, yeah, maybe we can get food uh, pretty easily and cheaply, but when honeybees are not doing well, well then our system begins to, to show signs of stress. Diversifying our, our portfolio with pollinators like honeybees, but also bumblebees, sweat bees, mason bees, cuckoo bees, leaf cutter bees. Now we start to build in some biodiversity. It sounds to me, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like reinvigorating these native bee populations is kind of a solution or a, at least a partial remedy for food insecurity because you were talking about the diversity and there's been a lot of studies showing that biodiversity in ecosystems and biodiversity in agriculture systems not only increases crop yield and food production, but also mitigates the impacts of climate change. And as climate change worsens, we know that food insecurity is going to be an even greater problem. The first question is native bees are incredibly important to um, food systems. And you mentioned food insecurity, although there's a lot wrapped up in why um, certain groups of people are more food insecure than others. That maybe has to do with, with pollinators, but I think also a lot of sort of, uh, you know, social and racist policies right. uh, that have led to those systems. Uh, in addition to food systems, native bees are incredibly important pollinators of, of wild plants and ecosystems. Studies do show that honeybee populations are declining too. Um, we know that they suffer mightily from varroa mite and habitat loss and climate change. And local beekeepers are popping up everywhere, united by this same, according to you, flawed premise of saving the European honeybees. Um, but according to the USDA, honeybees pollinate 80% of all flowering plants and one-third of American food crops. So I'm just curious, like, are honeybees a waste of time? Do they even need saving? You know, would supporting native bees come at the expense of honeybees and by extension our crops? The first thing is that honeybees are in many parts of their range um, cultivated. They're, they're not wild. And our wild bees are, well, you know, wild. They live in our ecosystems. And so I think the best distinction is that saving our native bees is an environmental concern. Saving our honeybees is an economic concern. You know, our current 
agricultural system is not possible without honeybees on the scale that we base them at, right? You imagine farms that are, are thousands of acres with nothing but a single crop. You need a pollinator that can be raised in mass in order to pollinate those crops. And honeybees are the perfect you know, solution for that. Um, one hive contains 10 to 30,000 workers, um, and you can ship them around from farm to farm, and so you can move the pollination to where you need it. In contrast, our native bees live differently. Many of them are solitary, meaning a single female lives in a single nest, um, and they can't be easily moved around. Their nests are in old cavities in trees or, or in holes in the ground. Um, and so it's not as uh, obvious uh, how we can leverage all of our wild bees in the way that we've developed our food system. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, one solution for farmers might be to, you know, create on-farm habitat for our wild bees. Rather than bringing bees to your farm, what if you could support bees on your farm? And there's a lot of interest in, in research right now of what can we do to make farms um, support bee populations while also making those remedies attractive to economically um, concerned farmers, right? You still have to make a profit. You can't give up too much of your land to, to bee habitat. Otherwise, you wouldn't grow any crops. So how can we balance the tension between creating habitat for pollinators on the farm, which results in free pollination, while also making sure that we have a, um, a, a viable yield? Yeah, and I think part of the dilemma is that since honeybees, even though honeybees aren't native to the U.S., most of the crops that we grow here, or at least some of the main ones, aren't native either, um, and honeybees evolved alongside those non-native crops in other parts of the world. So do you think that realistically, um, for large-scale farms, would the solution be to transition entirely to native crops in order to support native honeybees um, and kind of shift our entire food system, or would it kind of just be you know, growing some non-native crops with some honeybees alongside some native crops with native bees? Well, I, I don't necessarily think the solution is to sort of change what people are growing. Um, I think the solution is that, so many of our native bees are capable of pollinating crops that aren't native to North America. Um, for example, there are many bees that pollinate peaches, and peaches are not a native tree to North America. Mm -hmm. um, but many of our crops are are native, and I think we just need to, to leverage the wild pollinators that we do have. Now, it's it's a really tricky question, right? Because the way we're currently doing agriculture is that there's massive farms, like enormous scales, um, and they are very industrially managed with lots of chemicals, lots of intense chemicals, and, and lots of tillage. And so there's really no place for our wild pollinators to live. And I think sort of a, a, a sort of until our agricultural system transitions away from that, um, or at least transitions to a less intense, perhaps more polyculture system, like it's really hard to see to how to make this work. The other thing is that it's, it's often said that, you know, honeybees pollinate a third of our crops or honeybees pollinate. And, and honestly, I, I just have to push back on those statistics a little bit. Like honeybees can uh, pollinate many of our crops, but wild bees often do participate, especially in some of our sort of less intensely managed farms, especially like blueberries in the Northeast, um, are, are heavily uh, pollinated by our, our native bees. Um, 
And so just because honeybees do, or that's what farmers rent, doesn't mean honeybees are the only option. One of my favorite scientific studies talks about the synergy that native bees and honeybees have. And in, in their study, they looked at the pollination between a solitary mason bee and honeybees uh, on almonds. And what they found was that together, honeybees and mason bees were able to pollinate more almonds than either of the two species individually. It's really an example of where uh, diversity is the solution. You asked, you asked some other questions in that other question. I don't know if you could repeat it. Uh, I don't know if I oh, I think I think you covered it. Yeah. Okay. Um, in your TED talk, you mentioned um this concept called bee washing, and I kind of just want to get at like where this misconception that honeybees are the ultimate, you know, savior or the crux of our food system, um, where that comes from. So, could you just like define what bee washing or greenwashing is and how it relates to honeybees? Yeah, right. So greenwashing is this term um, that refers to misrepresenting um, an initiative as being environmentally helpful um, in order to make profit, right? So it often refers to advertising um, that um, misrepresents environmental initiative uh, in order to to appeal to our, our interest in protecting the environment. And so the, the analogy extends to, to honeybees, right? So honeybees are livestock. They don't need to be saved. It's not an environmental concern. And yet initiatives that say save the honeybee or, or you know, purchase this product because we're, we're helping to create honeybee habitat, um, it, it's, 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 it's not as environmentally friendly as you think. Um, and so there, I see a lot of companies interested in being environmentally friendly by installing a honeybee hive on their rooftop. Um, I see a lot of companies saying, we're planting wildflowers for honeybees. Um, none of that helps the environment. Adding a honeybee hive to the rooftop um, at best has a negligible impact and at worst actually increases resource competition with our native bees that live in the city or live near that honeybee hive, right? If you imagine one hive has 30,000 workers, uh, you're now you know, releasing tens of thousands of individuals onto the landscape that are going to compete with the native bees that previously did not have to compete for those resources. Whether honeybees are leading to native bee decline uh, through competition is still an open question, mm-hmm. um, but it's something that a lot of folks are interested in and are working on. Yeah. And so, right, so, so, yeah, so there's all sorts of, so I think that the, the takeaway here is just be a conscientious consumer of honeybee information in the media. Uh, honeybees are often used as a sort of example of environmental um, purity, that if there's bees, the environment is saved. Um, and yet many of these bees are living in boxes in our backyards. Um, and I really don't think uh, we should be thinking of honeybees as an environmental concern. Yeah. Um, yes, it's true. Um, so you mentioned earlier that the honeybees do face threats. And yes, honeybees do face their own series of threats and stressors. Um, Varroa mite, for one, is a nasty little parasite that transmits disease and and weakens hives, especially the immune systems of bees. Uh, Combine that with pesticide use on many of the farms that honeybees visit um, and sort of reduced um, forage during the time in between farms and just the stress of being 
trucked around from farm to farm, all of that undermines our, bee, our, our honeybee populations. Yet, we know how to raise honeybees in labs. We know what we need to do to keep their populations up. And so it's an economic issue. It's how much do we have to pay to raise more honeybees? I'd like to just state that we're not in danger now nor ever of losing the honeybee. The honeybee is not going to go extinct, even if that's what you hear in the media. Mm -hmm. um, the bees we do need to concern about, be concerned about are our native bees, the 4,000 species of wild bees that are green and blue and fuzzy and that sleep on flowers and that dig holes in the ground and that invade each other's nests and, and don't live in boxes. Those bees are living in our, our landscapes. Um, they don't have beekeepers to look after them. Um, and, uh, and our food systems and our ecosystems would be greatly undermined without their presence. Yeah. Um, so, so our native bees, unlike the honeybees, uh, our native bees face a different suite of threats. The big three for them are habitat loss. So the removal of sort of natural vegetation and forage and nesting sites. Combine that with widespread pesticide use, especially on residential lands. Um, and then climate change, extreme heat especially, threatens our native bees. And so it's the cocktail between those three threats that we have to watch out for. Um, and as a scientist that studies native bees, I'm acutely interested in how our bees um, are going to fare in the future and what aspects of their life cycles are most sensitive to the ways that we're changing the landscapes. Mm -hmm. What can you know, local gardeners or communities or schools and developers do to support native bees? Oh, so glad you asked that. So um, I like to think of it as SEEDS, S-E-E-D-S. S stands for uh, sustained native landscapes. Basically, um, we need to make sure that we plant the flowers that our native bees have co-evolved alongside with it. Um, and so things that are native to North America are the best options for our native bees. Um, and so what this means is things like sunflowers, goldenrods, asters, blueberries, uh, even trees like maple trees and tulip trees are native trees that um, are really important for our, our bees. Um, so the second thing is to e is employ a life cycle approach, basically not just considering the adult stages when they're on flowers, but considering that bees build nests that are out of sight for 11 months of the year, underground, in a hollow cavity, um, or in a rotting log, and that disturbing our landscapes during that time can actually wreak havoc on our bee populations, and we would never know. The second E stands for eliminate pesticide use. It's pretty straightforward. Pesticides, namely the, the group of pesticides known as neonicotinoids, are, are either directly lethal to, to bees or have these nasty sublethal effects where they impair bee memory and navigation. And it's quite easy to reduce pesticide use on your, your home. Just don't spray it. And if you use a pesticide company, just tell them no thanks. Um, there's no such thing as a pesticide that kills a mosquito but doesn't negatively impact a bee. Um, and so just, just be really careful. And if you don't have property, you can still work on this point by voting for stricter society uh, legislation in your, your hometown. Mm -hmm. The fourth letter in seeds is a D and D stands for discover what's around you. So this is my favorite part of the whole thing is our bees flying around us. They're in our backyards. They're in our meadows. They're in our forests. They're in our parks. Um, and 
oftentimes they go completely unnoticed. Um, and so in order to save our native bees, we need to know our native bees. We need to go out and watch them and we can learn from them what, what, what we need. And so grab your phone, grab a pair of binoculars, grab a journal, um, and you can take photographs and post them to online websites like iNaturalist, where you can meet a whole community of nature enthusiasts uh, and, and insect protectors, including, including bee protectors. Um, and then that way you can learn um, what you need to do to, to help our native bees. And the last is S, uh, is, is share with others, right? So to take what you learn uh, and, and become an advocate for, uh, for our native bees. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that mnemonic. Just to kind of conclude, um, you shared a lot of really intriguing stories of these quirky, bizarre native bee species that I had never heard of on your TED Talk. And I was wondering if you could just share with me one of your favorite kind of odd or endearing things that um, a species of native bee does. Sure. I'll tell you one that is on my mind right now. So it is early August in the Northeast and everyone's gardens are brimming with sunflowers. The big giant sunflowers, the smaller sunflowers, uh, perennial sunflowers, annual sunflowers. It's just a city full of sunflowers. Now sunflowers, um, although they're grown all over the world, are actually native to, to North America. And as a result, there are many bees that depend on sunflowers to complete their life cycles. So these are very picky eaters. Um, the males and the females, their entire life revolves around sunflowers. So in early August, these sunflower longhorn bees, as they're called, uh, emerge. The males emerge first, and they immediately get to work setting up a, a little territory to patrol in a sunflower patch. And they bop from flower to flower, occasionally stopping to drink for nectar. Um, and their goal is to, to patrol for feet. A few days later, the females emerge and the males, uh, if they're lucky, will get an opportunity to mate. Female will probably mate just once, maybe twice. Um, and after that, she wants nothing to do with the males, although they'll keep patrolling in the gardens. Uh, during the days, the females will dig their nests. So the nests go underground a foot or so. Um, and in that nest, she's going to create little chambers. And each chamber will contain one egg, and a provision of pollen and nectar. And you guessed it, it's all sunflower pollen and nectar. Um, And interestingly enough, sunflower pollen is actually pretty nutrient poor. It's it's not a very good meal, unless you've evolved to eat a very nutrient poor meal. So oftentimes what you see is is that bees that visit sunflowers, um, there's not many bees that eat sunflower pollen that eat other pollen because there's lots of other good meals out there. And so these bees, these female bees sort of have a nice access to uh, a a pollen resource that other bees can't necessarily take advantage of. Mm -hmm. So during the day, she'll go out and she'll scrabble around pollen. She'll land at, you know, 12 o'clock on a sunflower bloom and she'll start working her way around and she'll make this perfect complete circle all the while using her front legs to grab dusts of dusty pollen and pass it to her mid legs and pass it to her hind legs. And on her hind legs, she has specialized hairs for carrying loads of pollen back to the nest. They're called scopal hairs, and they're really, really branched. Imagine like a pipe cleaner that has many pipe cleaners coming off of it. And all these tiny little branched hairs increase the surface area of her hind legs and allow her to carry insane amounts of pollen in one trip. 
And so by the end of her, by the end of her foraging bout, it looks like she has chaps. She's wearing chaps because uh, her legs are just so uh, bulging with pollen. Um, and so our, our sunflower longhorn lady, she leaves the flower and she goes back underground. She regurgitates nectar, scrapes pollen off of her hind legs and mixes pollen and nectar into these provisions uh, for, her, for her babies. Um, and in a, in a day, she'll, she'll make uh, one egg and one provision. So she'll provision like one offspring a day. Um, and she might do this, you know, a dozen times at most during her life. So she's not making that many progeny, but she's a really good mom because she's giving each of these babies exactly what she needs. Um, but lurking in the garden is a whole host of threats for these bees. So on flowers, she might encounter crab spiders that have camouflaged themselves and are indetect un un uh, undetectable. So she might encounter crab spiders that are undetectable to her because uh, as they lie in wait, and when she lands on a sunflower, she might be nabbed. Uh, and unable to return home because this crab spider will have eaten her. Um, there are also bees that have it out for her. These are cuckoo bees, and the cuckoo bees try to sneak into her nest when she's away. So she's away getting pollen and nectar. The cuckoo bees slip in, lay eggs in the chambers, and then slip out undetected. Mama, uh, Mama Longhorn bee comes home, and um, she's none the wiser. Uh, the cuckoo bee egg hatches and makes quick work of the longhorn bee egg. And from that nest, uh, a cuckoo bee uh, will emerge alongside longhorn bees next year. Um, so all of this is happening in the garden, but what about our male friends? What about our male bees that mated and then, then what? Well, the male bees continue to persist and it's one of my favorite activities uh, is watching the male bees on the flowers. During the day, they move at impossibly fast speeds um, from flower to flower, looking for the opportunity to mate. Uh, but at, in the evening, the male bees are actually not welcome in the nest. In the bee world, in most of the insect world, male bees don't really help raise offspring. Um, and so the male bees have to find alternative, alternative places to live. And one of my favorite activities in the garden right now is, is watching male bees sleep. They all cuddle one up, up, up against each other, right where the ray petals meet the, the disc petals um, in sunflowers, um, right on that junction. And they all sleep side by side, sort of in that crease. Um, and it's like a little bee slumber party. And you go out there with a flashlight and everyone's gardens in the Northeast, you can go see this uh, in, your, in your backyards. Go out to the sunflowers, shine a flashlight, um, and you'll see uh, these bees sleeping. They don't have eyelids, so their eyes look open, um, but they're motionless uh, and they'll resume their activities when the sun comes up the next day um, and they'll be around for, you know, a few weeks. Um, but getting to watch sleeping bees is just, is just the best. Um, and so, so then September rolls around and it's apple picking season and pumpkin carving season and the sunflowers seed heads are being demolished by squirrels and downy woodpeckers and the squash, the, the sunflower longhorn bees are, are nowhere to be seen. So the males have died, the females have died, but underground in the nest is the next year's generation. Uh, and those bees will develop on the sunflower pollen in their little chambers. They'll hibernate over the winter. The following year, they'll resume development. They'll pupate just like a caterpillar um, metamorphoses into a butterfly. Bees metamorphose from baby bees, little larvae into adults with wings. And next summer, 
when the sunflowers bloom again, the bees will have pupated and be ready to emerge and you'll have sunflower bees in your yard again. Wow. So this is one of the things that is most exciting to me about bee conservation is that it can be done at home. It is possible to support the entire life cycle of the sunflower longhorn bee in your yard simply by planting native flowers, by considering the entire life cycle uh, and knowing that there are bees underground even when there's no bees above ground, by not spraying pesticides, which if you drench the soils means that the baby bees have to live in those toxic soils their whole lives, by going out and noticing and developing a relationship with insects in your yard that maybe you didn't know exist. And then by telling about it, tell other people about the longhorn bees and get them to go look on their yards and see if they also feel this sort of radiating joy and delight that there are bees that live on sunflowers uh, and nothing else. And that they can make decisions, that, that, that you can make decisions in your yards to save our native bees. Yeah. Um, and so I just went through seeds right there, right? That's S-E-E-D-S. And in the context of the sunflower longhorn bee, um, uh, you know, in North America, there's 4,000 species of bees. In New England, there's over 500. And so, you know, there are um, so many different species that we can get to know. And each of them has their own particular way of living. Um, and uh, and if you, we figure out what their particular needs are, we can do a lot to, to keep them around for years to come. Yeah, that's incredible. It's incredible how like carefully orchestrated and precarious this bee life cycle and whole ecosystem is. It just seems like if one thing is off balance, everything is going to kind of collapse. But it's it's also empowering to know that, you know, your everyday gardener can support an entire new generation of these native bees. So I think that's just fascinating. Well, um, gardeners often think of themselves as growing plants. But as a result, if you grow sunflowers, you grow bees too. You're growing sunflower bees. And if you grow sunflower bees, you are also growing insects like uh, you know wasps and arthropods like spiders that eat those sunflower bees. Um, and, and through pollination, you're also supporting uh, animals that eat the seeds of sunflowers like squirrels and woodpeckers and goldfinches. And so, um, yeah, one simple act of planting a sunflower can have immense ramifications um, simply because our ecosystems are so interconnected. Yeah. Um, and understanding that when we're trying to save bees or save native bees, we're taking a systems approach and we're thinking about all the linkages that one insect has, I think um, can really make you appreciate how, how influential your actions can be. Yeah. Um, and that one small action can have just sort of these this ripple effect through this this woven web of, of biodiversity and it's all in our backyards like i think i don't want to push back against the notion that you have to go far to see really amazing nature um you can bring all of this nature out of hiding by planting uh flowers in your yard um it's all there um uh, and so I'll make a plug. I, I've written a website. It's called watchingbees.com. And it's basically an online field guide to our native bees. So how do you learn how to identify bees? Uh, our guide is a great, a great stop. Um, it has, we cover about 50 common bees in New England. Uh, and we have field marks that you can look for from photographs. Um, 
you grab yourself a pair of binoculars. I love um, this, this, these binoculars. They're called Papilio Pentax binoculars, and they're, they're close focus. So you can stand uh, and, uh, on the ground. You can focus, your, focus the binoculars on your feet, you know, a few feet away from you. So you get this up-close view of what's happening. Um, and I just want to, yeah, you don't need a microscope. You don't need pins and a collection. You don't need to kill insects to know what's happening. You need binoculars. You need your senses. You need patience and um, slowness. Um, and you will develop this real intimate relationship with the biodiversity in your yard. Yeah. Well, Dr. Dorian, I want to thank you for attending my B-Day party. Uh, you certainly caused a buzz, but I think it was worth it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Changing Planet Justice podcast, and here's to the noble native bee.